Well, good evening, City Life. How are you guys doing? Sorry, this is my first time having to do that, so I was a little late on my cue. But uh, welcome. We're so excited that you're here. And uh, if this is your, this is also the first time I've ever had to put this in my back pocket, so that's awkward. Okay, out of the way. Um, uh, we're so happy that you're here. I'm so excited that you're here, especially if you're a visitor. Um, and if you don't know who I am, my name is Pastor David. I am the freshly, uh, uh, newly ordained uh, student ministries pastor of Revolution Church. Thank you. Thank you. Um, and it's been awesome, like fresh, like January fresh. So I'm so excited. This is my first time uh, preaching on a Saturday night. And I got to say, um, you know, pre- I'm, I'm used to preaching to kids and I could boss your kids around a little bit. Uh, they, I can tell them to stand up and, and stand on their head and they'll do it. And it's awesome. So I'm, I might not do that tonight, but talk to me. Let me know that you're here. I'm used to responsiveness. You can, you can talk back. My kids know I like snaps too. Snaps are good. Anybody want to try it? Just, okay. Snaps are good. But anyway, before I uh, uh, jump into my sermon, I just want to say thank you first to Pastor Fred for just giving me this opportunity to speak. We have a, a limited amount of Saturdays in a year, and he's trusted me with this one. So that's kind of a big deal. And plus, he's just the man, right? I mean, we have an amazing pastor. Um, and also, I feel like anytime I have a microphone, I just want to say thank you to the parents uh, because... It, that's, that's, that's a huge thing that you guys give me uh, is uh, the responsibility and the privilege to be able to pastor your kids. I, my wife and I, we have a seven-month-year-old daughter, uh, and I, I have uh, a hard time, you know, letting people babysit her, let alone pastor her. So you guys l- let me pastor your kids, and that's amazing, um, and I appreciate it. So, all right, well, we're in the Good News series, and I've been doing a little research. I actually have been out of the service, a lot of, uh, of uh, these services, and been, you know, doing Discovering City Life and behind the scenes, and so I've had to uh, catch up on the podcast, and I've been taking crazy notes. So this is my quick Good News recap. You guys ready for it? Yes? No? Maybe so? All right. Good news recap. So this series uh, is entitled Good News. It's about the gospel and the gospel, Pastor Fred has broken down. Uh, the gospel, uh, when you break it down, is good news. And if you put it in a phrase, it's this. I am at one with God, atonement, rescued from myself, redemption, just as if I'm perfect, justification, because Jesus paid it all propitiation. So that's a short way to, to think about and remember the gospel, but I'm looking around and some of you guys, are, your eyes are like bugging out, like propitiation, what is that even? So Pastor Fred has, has boiled it down even more for us. The gospel, even more simply put, is this, I know I'm going to heaven when I die and that I can experience heaven on earth while I'm here. That's the vision statement of City Life. Heaven now, heaven forever. It's the gospel. And so that's what we've been talking about here. You're all called up. So you can jump right into the good news series, right? So um, the other thing that I love that we've been uh, talking about and and covering in the good news series is that uh, sometimes good news doesn't feel good. Sometimes the good news, it involves a little bit of suffering. And tonight I'm going to talk about how sometimes the good news involves some sacrifice. So I want you, uh, if you will, to turn with me to Matthew 16. Matthew 16, verse 24. And here we have Jesus talking to his disciples about 
sacrifice. Matthew 16, verses 24 through 26, it says, Then Jesus said to his disciples, If any of you wants to be my follower, you must turn from your selfish ways, take off your cross, sorry, take up your cross and follow me. If you try to hang on, some translations say cling or save your life, you'll lose it. But if you give up your life, say life. If you give up your life for my sake, you will find it. Let's pray. Father God, I pray tonight, God, that you would give us the boldness to give up our life, Lord God, that you would help us to understand what the gospel really means. Help us to understand that it's good news to sacrifice and to give our whole lives, all of who we are, to you. I pray, God, that you would speak to me as I preach, that you would speak through me to the people who are in this room tonight. Have your way. And everyone said, amen. Amen. Awesome. So the title of my sermon tonight is this, Alter Your Identity. I think that when Jesus in Matthew 16 is talking to his disciples about laying down your life, he's talking about altering your identity, altering your identity. And, and this word life, if, you've, uh, if your Bible translates uh, uh, it as life in Matthew 16 instead of uh, soul, it's this Greek word suke. And suke does mean life. It means the breath. It means the direct aftermath of God's breathing. But, but it, it means soul as well, the seat of affections and will, the self, a person's uh, distinct identity. It's actually where we get our word psyche. So in psychology, you know, when they, they talk about your psyche, they talk about your unique identity. They're talking about your suke, right, your soul, the seat of your affections, yourself, who you are. And so Jesus, when he's talking to his disciples about laying down your life in order to find it, he's talking about laying down yourself, laying down your identity so that you can find it. And so tonight, I want to look at a story that I, I think perfectly uh, paints a picture of what it looks like to alter our identity, to lay down our lives, ourselves. And, um, and so that's the story of Abraham and Isaac, Abraham sacrificing Isaac. I was, um, you know, talking to Pastor Fred earlier this week how um, uh, about uh, sacrifice and how sacrifice is uncomfortable, right? We don't like to talk about sacrifice. Anybody reading the, uh, in, in the Bible reading plan right now? Shame. <laughs> I, I hate when pastors ask that question because it's like, yeah, sort of, right? Um, but, but if you're in the Bible reading plan, you know that we've been in Leviticus for it feels like about 10,000 years. And uh, I, I, it's always when I get to this point uh, in the Bible reading plan, I have to use all of my discipline to be able to, to read it because I'm not a detail-oriented person and it's very detailed. And it's especially detailed about sacrifice. Have you noticed this? Um, anybody, when you're reading your Bible, you're reading it over your breakfast maybe or your coffee. Anybody out there do that? I do. When, it, when I get to my office in the mornings, you know, I'll, I'll make some oatmeal and sit down and read my Bible and get my coffee. And I'm reading in Leviticus and, and all of a sudden it's talking about dipping your fingers in blood. And, and sprinkling it on the altar, right? Or, or burning the dung of the bull or whatever it is. And I'm like, this is so disgusting. You know, I push the, the oatmeal aside and, and I just got a 
bear through it and, and, and come back to my breakfast. Uh, sacrifice is, is uncomfortable. Sacrifice to us in our minds is, is a little gross. <laughs> but, but thank God the good news is that we don't have to sacrifice like that anymore, right? For our atonement, for our propitiation, for our salvation. We don't have to sacrifice like that anymore. We don't have to gut any goats. Jesus, come on, has, has paid the ultimate price for us, right? But Jesus asks us still to sacrifice, and um, there's a perfect picture of, of what it means to lay down ourselves, to alter our identity in this story uh, of Abraham and Isaac. So many of you guys know the story uh, of Abraham sacrificing Isaac in Genesis 22, but I, I wanted to kind of uh, switch it up a little bit and, and start a little bit earlier. We're going to look at Genesis chapter 21. I'm so distracted. That's my daughter guys crying. I can't. Okay, we're going to look, we're going to start this story in Genesis 21 verses 33 through 34. Uh, And this is the exposition uh, of the story. It says, then Abraham planted a tamarisk tree at Beersheba, and there he worshiped the Lord, the eternal God. And Abraham lived as a foreigner in the Philistine country for a long time time. Somebody say long time. I told you, I boss your kids around, so this is just what I've gotten used to. I'm going to make you say stuff, but long time, right? So if you know anything about Abraham, anything about his story, you know that Abraham has a covenant with God, a three-part covenant with God, and the first part of that covenant is God's promise of land. We see it in Genesis 12.1. God asks him to leave everything that he knows behind and to go to a new place that he's going to show him. And then in Genesis 13.14, God shows him that place, the, what we call the promised land. Why? Because God promised him that land. And he said, anywhere you look, it, it, it's for you. Anywhere you walk, that's yours. That's the land that I've promised you, which sounds good, right? It sounds awesome. But then 35, 40 years pass, and here we find Abraham living in the promised land as a foreigner, as a stranger, living in the promises of God, but barely. Um, Where he is, it says that he plants a tree in Beersheba, and that's where we find him at the start of our, our story. Beersheba is the lowest point of the promised land. If you were to read through the Old Testament, they had like a local colloquialism of of when they were talking about the entirety of Israel, they would say from Dan to Beersheba, right? Like if you were like from, I don't know, Denby to Mercury or Denby to downtown, if you're like, man, I had to drive all the way, right, from Denby to downtown, that's kind of how they used to talk about the promised land eventually that became Israel, right? And Beersheba was the lowest point on that measurement. And so here Abraham is not only living in the promised land as a foreigner, not actually possessing it, but he's living on the fringes of it, barely even inside of it, right? From all appearances, it looks as if Abraham has nothing to show for the first of God's promises to him. Where we enter this story, Abraham looks like he's in a place of serious lack, and yet he places all trust and dependence in the God who put him there. I think Abraham's decision to live in the land, even though he couldn't possess it, was a way that he submitted his lack 
Uh, tonight, I'm going to talk about in, in, in the story of Abraham and, and Isaac, I'm going to talk about three sacrifices of identity that Abraham makes along the way. And the first is this, his lack his insecurity. For, for uh, us, a lot of times, lack can be the very thing that brings you to God, right? That binds you to him, that, that uh, uh, develops your relationship for him, uh, uh, some insecurity. And for Abraham, it was uh, this covenant promise of this land, right? And so um, for me, my kind of lack story where my insecurities are they are, um, or my, my lack uh, uh, was, it also plays into how I develop my relationship with God. I was, um, I grew up in a Christian home, you know, and I, I went to a Christian school and I knew about God. I read my Bible and I prayed and, and all of that stuff. Like I knew who God was. I talked to God. Um, but I would say I didn't have a real like relationship, moment by moment governing relationship like we talk about at City Life with God until uh, about 11, I was 11 or 12 years old in middle school. And so I was going to this um, youth group called Generation Church. Um, man, I was going to trash talk GC and say it's not as good as RC, but Generation Church's youth pastor is here. I wasn't expecting that. So anyway, uh, I was at Generation Church, right, which is an awesome youth program. I, I loved it. And I, I it was, and um, it's great. And so uh, in this season of my life, when I was in middle school, I was very aware of my lack right? Weren't we all aware of our lack in middle school? I was aware of our lack, my lack, but specifically I was aware of the absence of my father in my life. And I'd always been there, but it, it was something that I didn't really feel. It didn't really affect me so deeply until this point in middle school when I, I realized it was attached to my identity. It was attached to who I was, right? And so I developed these insecurities around that lack. I developed this identity around that lack. And I remember being at Generation Church and um, standing uh, uh, in worship. And uh, much like our worship tonight, I think it's always funny when Pastor Fred uses me as the example of like the stream, extreme example of what crazy worship looks like, right? Like jumping all around and hands lifted and everything like that, which is me now. But then it was not me. That was not sixth grade David, right? I was there like maybe some of you guys were tonight, right? Arms crossed and, and there and liking the music and all that stuff, but wasn't willing and really didn't understand why people were into it, right? So I'm there in worship, arms crossed, kind of like nodding my head because I like the song or whatever, but I don't know about this whole lifting my hands thing. And I remember God just specifically showing me a picture he shows me this picture of this little kid, like toddler age, maybe five years old, this little boy uh, jumping up and down with his arms outstretched saying, Daddy, Daddy, pick me up. If you guys, uh, any parents in here who have a toddler, you are very accustomed to that, right? Pick me up, pick me up, come on, pick me up, right? And he shows me that picture and he says, that's why, that's what it looks like when people are lifting up their hands and, and worshiping me and dancing with me in worship. And that's what you look like to me. That's what you look like to me. You're my son, and this is how I see you. In that moment, 
God took my lack and gave me a promise that I was not fatherless, uh, but that I was his son, right? And, and from that moment, I believe that, right? I, 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 from that moment on, it, it changed my life. It, it uh, caused me to develop a relationship with the Lord. But it wasn't until actually recently that I realized I still clung on, come on, I still held on to the identity of my lack, my insecurity. And so what I love about this, what I love about uh, um, Abraham in this story is that he's living in the promises of God. He chooses to live in the promises of God, even though his circumstances don't tell him that the promises are true. Yet he believes them and sets up camp there, even if it does have to be on the very bottom, uh, the fringes of his promise. I want to ask you tonight, where uh, is your lack? And have you set your identity up around that thing? Have you clung on to that thing, your, your insecurities? Is it a lack of self-control, a lack of a godly role model in your life, a lack of experience? What's your lack? And maybe for some of you like me, that lack was the thing that brought you uh, to God in the first place, but you haven't let go of that thing and it still defines you. For Abraham, he didn't let it define him, and he was obedient always to where God was leading him. He set up camp in the promises of God. The second sacrifice of identity that Abraham makes in this story is found in Genesis 22, verse 1. This is where we normally pick up the story of Abraham sacrificing Isaac. And I think it's a picture to us of what it looks like to sacrifice our love. Genesis 22, verse 1 through 2. It says, sometime later, God tested Abraham's faith. Abraham, God called. Yes, he replied, here I am. Take your son, your only son, yes, Isaac, whom you love, say love, so much, and go to the land of Moriah. Go and sacrifice him as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I will show you. Uh, this is the first time in Scripture that we actually see the word love recorded. There was love before this moment, I'm sure. You know, God loved us in, in, in Eden or when he was creating us in the beginning, right? And I'm sure Adam loved Eve. I'm sure Noah loved his family. But this is, God reserves the, the introduction of the word love for this moment. And we always talk about here at City Life that anytime something of significance appears in the Bible for the first time, it's for a reason. And this is why I think God reserves the word love for this situation. He waits until he has a situation where he can ask someone to sacrifice it. Why does God choose this moment? Because love is a powerful emotion. And God needed humanity to know that whatever we love must come under the authority of God with a willing, open, and outstretched hand. Sorry, I didn't put it up there for you. In, a, in a Revolution Church, we've been in a series called For the Love, and we've been talking a lot about love, and it's based on this book called um, The Four Loves by C.S. Lewis. Anybody ever read that book? The Four Loves, it's a great book. I'm a huge C.S. Lewis fan, and, um, but in the book, C.S. Lewis talks about the four Greek uh, words for love, and this, this is one of the quotes he says. He says, every human love at its height has a tendency to claim for itself a divine authority. 
its voice tends to sound as if it were the will of God himself. This is why God reserves this story, this moment in history, to introduce this word love to us. Because he understands how strong of a feeling, how strong of an emotion love is. And he understands that if we don't submit it to him, it will become a God. C.S. Lewis says in his book, if something tries to be a God that isn't God, it's a demon. It's vying for your attention. It's vying for your worship. And it's the same with love. Of course, um, Abraham loved Isaac because he was his son, but Isaac was also uh, the fulfillment of the second promise, or at least the first inkling of the fulfillment of God's, uh, the second part of his covenant with Abraham. Uh, in Genesis 13, 16, God says that his descendants are going to be as numerous as the sand, right? As numerous as the dust of the earth. And Abraham didn't exactly have that in this moment, but he did have Isaac, right? And he waited a hundred years for that. On top of that, Abraham's name means father. Abraham means father of a multitude. That's the name that God gives him. But even before that, his name mean, meant Abram, exalted or high father. Imagine your whole life for a hundred years, people addressing you as the very thing that you desired. That was your name. Your name was your lack. And here comes Isaac, who then becomes the affirmation of that promise. Wow, finally, I'm a father, and this is the one that I will be a father of multitudes with, right? The thing about Isaac and Abraham and Isaac's relationship with each other is that that relationship was a, 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 um, a identity-affirming love relationship. And we all have those kinds of relationships, right? Like if you're uh, uh, married, you're a wife or a husband, and it define, your, your love for that person, your relationship with that person, it defines who you are, right? If you're a parent, you've got kids, right? Uh, who you love plays a part in, in who you are, how you see yourself. It's identity-defining. And love and relationships are good. Relationships are always going to play a part in defining who we are. But no one of those relationships should have full control over our affections except our relationship with God. God wants us to love, of course. God gave Isaac to Abraham for him to love, but he wants that love to be fully surrendered and submitted to him. And so Abraham does that. We see if we keep reading in the story in Genesis 22, verse 3, that immediately Abraham is obedient. It says, the next morning, Abraham got up early. I don't know about you, but if I had to do that, I would be hitting the snooze button like crazy, right? But Abraham wakes up early and is immediate, immediately obedient. He saddled his donkey and took two of his servants with him along with his son, Isaac. Then he chopped wood for a fire for a burnt offering and set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day of their journey, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. Stay here with the donkey, Abraham told the servants. The boy and I will travel a little farther. We will worship there and then we will come right back. So Abraham placed, 
Sorry. Yep, I got you. So Abraham placed the wood for the burnt offering on Isaac's shoulders while he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them walked on together, Isaac turned to Abraham and said, A dad? Uh, why? You know, he's, he's recognizing in this moment that they're empty-handed. Abraham says, yes. He says, we have the fire and the wood, but where is the sheep for the burnt offering? And listen to what Abraham says. He says, God will provide a sheep for the burnt offering, my son. And they both walked on together. This is strange to Isaac that, that his father is empty-handed going on this journey to make a sacrifice for obvious reasons, right? They don't have the thing that they typically would sacrifice, but it's especially weird to Isaac because it's not as if they were in a position of lack. It's not as if that they were in a position uh, of not having any sheep of their own. They didn't have to hope to run into uh, a wild one, you know, along the way and take it with them. Uh, in fact, Abraham was very wealthy. Um, And this was the third of the three-part covenant that God gives to Abraham, the promise of blessing. And while the first part of his covenant promised to him, he was still lacking. This is an area where Abraham was balling, right? Like he, it says basically in Genesis 13 too, if you had like the just straight up revolution church version of the Bible, it says, Abraham is balling. In your Bible, it probably says Abram was very rich in livestock, silver, and gold. Just in case you didn't know, that's what that means. He had money, right? He had livestock. He had sheep to give. And what's so interesting to me, I love this, is that Abraham trusts God to provide for him. I think Abraham was absolutely willing and prepared to sacrifice Isaac on the altar. We'll see that in a minute. But I don't think his response to Isaac in verse 8 was a lie. I think he was hoping against hope that God really would provide an alternate sacrifice. I don't know about you, but if I thought for any second that maybe God might change his mind at the last minute, I would come up with, I would come with a backup plan, right? I would come with an alternate. People make fun of me. My wife makes fun of me all the time because I'm a hoarder. I keep all things paper. Pastor Fred now has, uh, makes fun of me because I, I keep all things paper in my wallet. And so my wallet is like this thick. Um, but that's who I am, right? I'm just a hoarder. I, I hold on to things and I bring things like just in case. And, and um, so if it were me and I was like, maybe just in case, God decides he won't take Isaac. I'm going to have something with me because it's not like I'm hurting here, right? I got lots of livestock at home. I'm balling, right? (laughs) But what it says is that Abraham trusts God to provide. Whether it was Isaac he was going to sacrifice or whether Isaac was going to be resurrected or or whether God did provide uh, an alternate he was trusting that God would be the provider of that. We see here Abraham's willingness to completely surrender to the provision of God. It's hard. So Abraham, you know, part of his identity uh, was uh, with this, uh, um, with this, attached to this covenant of blessing, right? He was a rich guy. He was wealthy. 
it's hard to talk about wealth. It's hard to talk about luxury without thinking about the rich young ruler in Mark 10. And we're not going to read the full story, but if you don't know that story, uh, the rich young ruler, he's this young guy who comes up to Jesus, rolls up to him on the street, right? And, and is like, hey, Jesus, how do I inherit eternal life? And so Jesus is like, well, you know, you can obey these few commandments. And he's like, bruh, I got you, right? That's nothing to me. I've been doing that since, sorry, this is the Revolution Church, David coming out. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, I got you, right? I've been doing that since I was a kid. What else you got? And, and so uh, he says, well, you could sell or not even sell, give all that you have and follow me. And the Bible says that he just walks away dejected, head down and sad because he had so much. I think that, well, I'm not going to get there yet. Let's, let's read this. So here in Mark 10, verse 23 through 27, Jesus provides a little bit of commentary on his interaction with the rich young ruler. It says in verse 23, wait, I went too far. I'm telling you, I'm new. All right, Genesis, I'm sorry, Mark 10. <laughs> Here we go. And um, it says Mark 25 up there, but we're going to start. Okay, just kidding. Um, I got to hear for you, so that's great. Jesus looked around and said to his disciple, how hard it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And it says the disciples were astonished at his words. Again, Jesus said to him, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. So they were even more astonished, saying to one another, then who can be saved? Looking at them, Jesus said, with men, it's impossible, but not with God, because all things are possible with God. I think that the rich young ruler, uh, part of uh, the exchange that Jesus has with the rich young ruler, wasn't just that he had to uh, give up all of his stuff, but he had to trust in the provision of Jesus. He says not only to give your stuff up, but to follow me. Trust me that you're going to have a place to sleep. Trust me that you're going to have food to eat. And it wasn't just that um, the, the ruler, the, the young guy, he had a lot of stuff. He had a hard time trusting in God's provision in the area where he didn't have lack, in the area where he had luxury, where he was comfortable. And, and it's clear to me here in verse 26 where the disciples say, wow, then who can be saved? That is not just talking about riches, uh, possessions. He's talking about wealth. I love the defini my definition of wealth that I just invented two days ago. I love it. <laughs> this is wealth. Wealth is where your worries aren't. Wealth is where your worries aren't. Where are you wealthy? Where in you, your life do you have excess and you feel like, I don't need to trust God in that. I don't need to, to rely on God's provision in that because I got that, right? I'm a baller, right? Is it your intellect? Is it your, your physical ability? Is it uh, your, your charisma? Is it your influence? Where in your life do you have luxury? Where in your life are you comfortable and not relying on the provision of God? I love that Abraham lived in financial luxury, and yet he trusts in God for his provision. He doesn't allow it to define him. 
All right, so uh, we're going to take a departure real quick from this story to, to remind us again where we started. In Matthew 16, verses 24 through 26, Jesus is talking to his disciples, and he's saying, If any of you wants to be my followers, you must turn from your selfish ways, take up your cross, and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. Come on. If you try to hang on to your life, you'll lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you'll find it. What does he mean by that? What does that actually look like? That sounds nice, but what does it look like? I think this is the picture of a, to us of what it looks like. If we keep reading the story in Genesis 22 verse 9, it says, when they arrived at the place where God had told him to go, Abraham built an altar and arranged the wood on it. Then he tied, say tied, or some translations say bound, So he bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And Abraham picked up the knife to kill his son as a sacrifice. And at that moment, the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham. And you guys uh, know the rest of the story, right? He, he stops, he intervenes, and he keeps Abraham from actually killing his son Isaac. And he actually does provide an alternate sacrifice for him. I love that the story ends that way because it, it shows us the character of God. But... It shouldn't distract us from the fact that God still asks us to sacrifice. And I believe that Abraham actually does that in this moment. In your Bible, the story, this passage of Scripture is probably titled The Sacrifice of Isaac or Abraham's Sacrifice of Isaac. Somewhere the word sacrifice is in there. And if we define sacrifice, if you equate sacrifice to slaughter— and try to define sacrifice that way, then you might think that Abraham doesn't go all the way through with it. And if you think, well, if Abraham doesn't go all the way through with it, well, then I don't have to either, right? How many of us have done that, been in a service like tonight, come to the altar, right? There's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Anybody else an ugly crier at the altar? I'm an ugly crier at the altar, uh, uh, and, and you're, you're going through the motions just like Abraham went through the motions, and you've got your sacrifice in your hand, and you're kneeling, and you're giving it to him. But in the back of your mind, you, you're thinking, God, just swoop in at the last minute, right? Or, or in the back of your mind, you're already making plans to take that thing with you and walk out the door. But I love how they title it in the Jewish tradition. In the Jewish tradition, how they call, or what they call this story is the akta, which, is, which means the binding of Isaac. The binding of Isaac. If we understand and we title this story as the binding, then there's no question that Abraham went all the way through with the act of surrender. And this is what I think. That that's what Jesus means when he says, lay down your life at the altar. Sacrifice your life at the altar. What is he saying? Sacrifice your identity, your soul, yourself. He's saying to bind it. Whether it lives or whether it dies, it's bound, right? It could be the good parts of who you are. It could be the parts that, like Pastor Fred was talking about earlier tonight, that irritate you, that no need to be removed. Whatever it is, whether it lives or it dies, it needs to be bound to Christ. God is asking us to do the same, to bind all of who we are, our lack, our love, our luxury, and offer it to him as a sacrifice. 
And whether it lives or dies, it has to be bound and submitted to him. So I'm going to invite the band uh, to come up. And as they do, we've been kind of playing around with this phrase, I've got good news and I've got bad news, right? We're in the good news series. So I've got good news. I do. I have good news for you tonight and I have bad news. I'm going to start with the bad news. The bad news is this. If you're sitting here tonight and you're thinking, that doesn't sound too appealing to me. That whole, like, lay your life down thing, bind your identity and bring it to the altar and give it to God. That doesn't really sound appealing to me. I don't know if I want that. I'd rather be free. I'd rather be uh, free of religion, free of Christ, free of God. I'd rather just do my own thing. I'd rather be free. I have news for you. And it's bad news. You're already bound to something. You are already bound to something. Romans 6 verses 20 through 21, it says, When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the obligation to do right. Another way of saying is that when, when you were free from me, from God, from any obligation to him, you were actually enslaved to your sin. And what was the result? You're now ashamed of the things you used to do, things that end in eternal doom. In verse 21, God's saying is the only fruit of a life unbound to him that isn't bound to him is death and shame, right? Often people think of freedom as the ability to do whatever you want, but that kind of freedom is really just slavery to the compulsive desires of your selfish heart and does not go without consequence. But I got good news. Anybody like good news? The good news is this, Romans 6, verse 22 through 23. But now you are free from the power of sin and have become slaves of God. Now you do those things that lead to holiness and result in eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ our Lord. The good news is that you can become free tonight from the bondage of your sin. And the good news is that it's going to cost you. And guess what? What it costs you is what's leading you to death anyway. What it costs you is what's binding you anyway. So we just, we want to take a moment, we've been doing this in all of our services and in the Good News series, we want to take a moment uh, for people to respond. So I want to ask everyone to just close your eyes, bow your heads, and if you're listening to me talk tonight and you're thinking, man, I, I can't think of a time that I've ever bound all of who I am. I've, I can't think of a time where I've ever submitted all of who I am to the authority of Jesus Christ in my life. If that's you tonight and you're saying, you know what, that sounds familiar, I do wake up sometimes and feel shame. I do feel like sometimes that the fruit of my life is actually leading me to death. Death, even though I look free, even though it seems like I'm free, I feel like I'm dying. Come on, if that's new, you tonight, I want you to just raise your hand. 
where you are, just raise your hand. I already see three people. Is there anybody else? Come on, this is good. Raise your hand. If you've never made a vow of devotion to Christ, if you've never bound yourself and given yourself completely to him, just in the privacy of this moment, it's another hand. It's awesome. What I want to do, we're not going to do anything crazy. We're actually all going to do this together. We're going to pray together. And if you raised your hand, come on, I want you to pray this with me. And the rest of you, I want you to pray this with me as well. Say, Jesus, I need you. God, I acknowledge that my way is leading me to death. That my way is leading me to shame. But God, I thank you that you made a way. Jesus, I thank you that you gave yourself as a sacrifice so that I can experience new life in you. God, I trust you. I lay down all that I am. Give myself to you. Awesome. I want to invite you guys. You can give it up. Come on. I want to invite all of you guys to stand up. We're going to go back into worship. But if that was you and you did raise your hand for the first time tonight, you prayed that prayer for the first time tonight, we have people who want to pray with you, who want to talk to you at the back corners of the room. They're there waiting to pray for you. And so please, as we sing this song, go to them. We also have a gift for you. It's a, a booklet that talks about you know, what it means to be a new believer, and, and, and it will help you in that journey. So find someone in a blue shirt, and they can get that for you. But come on, let's worship, worship together. Don't miss that opportunity to get that prayer, to receive that gift. And the rest of us, let's worship.